1: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Josh Ober is a Stanford University classicist who's long been based in their political science department. What's going on? Mistaken identity? Interdisciplinarity run amok? Well, the answer is both more mundane than that and more interesting, because it turns out that Josh, who's made many seminal contributions to our understanding of rhetoric in the age of classical Athens, is not only interested in the ancient Greeks in their own right, but is also very much absorbed in the question of how we might be able to meaningfully learn from them, to what extent we can apply some of their shrewd political insights and structures
0: to our own rather tumultuous times. I think I was the... Um a well, fairly rare person to be a uh, chair of a front-rank political science department who had never had any experience of a political science until I was hired here about eight years ago. No position in political science or no degrees in it. Um, so I, th- I want this on my, on my um, gravestone uh, uh, that I chaired a front-rank um, humanities department um, at Princeton's you know, right. top-ranked uh, classics department and a top-ranked social science department. And I don't know any other person who's ever done that. So that's it. I, I, figure, I figure I've, I've, I've got But one thing I can claim. So that's your <laughs> uh, you that's my <laughs> epitaph. That's my epitaph. I chaired a front-ranked humanities department and, and lived to tell the tale.
1: <laughs> right. Well, that, you know, that's not bad. as not these bad. things no, exactly. As these things go,
0: that's that's. Uh, that's uh, uh, and on, on speaking terms with my colleagues in both departments. I uh, noticed that. Uh, I, 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 well, I just noticed in, in the hall, I mean,
1: you, you, it, I think your personality has, has a lot to do with this. Uh, but let, let's start off at, uh, at the beginning, as I promised you or threatened mm-hmm. you that, that, that we would. Um, so no formal training in political science, um, but I want to, I, I heard a story uh, or rather I read a story from this Art of Theory interview about how you even began college, which was somewhat serendipitous.
0: So, um, so yeah. tell, tell me a
1: little bit about, about that going all the way back.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you go back far enough, uh, you know, you get back uh, to the ancient history of the 1960s, and that's <laughs> about where it starts, um, uh, at least for me. Uh, I was not a particularly motivated student uh, when I was in high school in the '60s. There had a lot of other things going on that I found much more interesting. So this um, was
1: the, you were, you wanted to drop out, tune in, tune out, yeah, drop out, yeah, yeah, that basically sort
0: of stuff? that's 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 right. Uh, uh, and so I was uh, living uh, with my girlfriend um, uh, in the sort of dicier part of Minneapolis at the time. Uh, and she developed uh, um, a problem with her wisdom teeth. Uh, her parents used this um, to uh, uh, leverage her into uh, college. Um, how,
1: how did they? How did they do that? They, 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 her her for
0: they, they Yeah, they said they'd pay for the for the um, operation she needed if she if she signed up for courses at University of Minnesota. So she did. So, so otherwise, she was she had to deal with all these dental problems. Yeah, that's right. So either okay. you could deal with it yourself or <laughs> you could do what we want and you start taking classes at the university. So, um, you know, <laughs> it wasn't bad. They had some leverage and they used it. Uh, and after all, they wanted... They wanted the best for her. They didn't want sure. her to you know, be living her, her life with her degenerate boyfriend in the shabby part of Minneapolis. But little did they know. Little did they know, boyfriend. that's right, that things were gonna go. Uh, so, uh, so I decided I may as well take some classes too. I mean, I'd been sort of urged by various friends to give it a try. Um, uh, so I figured I may as well do it uh, and uh, came into a class, my first term in Greek history, it's uh, taught by um, a guy who would turn out to be my, my undergraduate advisor. Uh, and I just thought this was the greatest thing. I thought, this, what, a, what a wonderful. It was in um, Greek history, introductory class. Uh, and he started out one of the, one of the classes um, up in, on the blackboard, because this was the days when there were blackboards. And he started writing out slowly, you know, T-H-U-C, writes out Thucydides. And he says, you see this? If you misspell that, you fail the course. And it's a big class. People start laughing. Ha, ha, ha. You fail the course if you misspell this. And so I thought, ah, it's serious. You know, some um, of the standards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I mean, because I had sort of lived in this world for some time in which everybody was, as it were, wanting to be relevant and um, sort of thought, well, maybe the kids really do know what's going on and so on. This guy thought, that's not true. Um, uh, he didn't dislike the youth, he just thought Thucydides was more worth paying attention to than most of the verbal that was being said by us. Yeah, or or um, most people for that matter. Well, most people ever since. That's right. So uh, he just wanted us to take it seriously and here's how we got our attention. Uh, so. After the um, end of this first term, I thought, this is stuff, it's really great, I really like this stuff, um, uh, I think I'll do this, uh, why not? And so I went to, went to talk with him um, uh, during his office hours and said, you know, I really, I really like this, so, um, so I'd like to basically do what you do, I think this would be a good career for me. And he looked at me and said, you can't. And I said, well, well, well why? Uh, and so he said, "Well, look at you. I mean, you're not going to do what's necessary. You'd have to, you know, uh, uh, work much harder than I think you're willing to do. And so don't, you know, don't, don't, don't waste my time." That was, I think, to his mind, the end of it. But I could sort of getting down a little bit, stubborn, and said, "Well, just in case." I were willing to do the work, what work would I have to do? And he said, Well, you'd have to sign up next year for, our next term for Greek. Figuring that was the end of it for me, but I signed up the next term for Greek and sort of took Greek courses and uh, Latin courses and um, continued to take history courses from him. So one thing led to another. And at a certain point, he said, You know, you should maybe think about this thing called graduate school. I said, What? What's that? I mean, really, I, we were so innocent in those days. I mean, now all my students are pre-professional by the time they're, you know, in, in yeah, But you're also school. going to Stanford. You're in a different environment. You're teaching Stanford students and so forth. I mean, presumably yes, there's a self-selection right. process that's right. that goes that's on. That's right. So this was, this was a different time and a different, and a different place. and uh, uh, so, uh, so one thing led to another, and he you know, said I should go to study with a guy he had studied with, and that's how I got into the field.
1: And through this period, your awakening as it were, um, what did other people say about this? I mean, you you mentioned what this this show, this is Tom Kelly, right? Yes, that's
0: right. This is Thomas Kelly, University of Minnesota History Department.
1: And so his reaction was... uh, was rather skeptical to put it mildly went at the very
0: beginning at the very beginning it um, was
1: and what was the reaction from other people what was the reaction from from your your girlfriend with the with the dental work or was yeah. she still your girlfriend at that point or yeah. your parents that, or the, the, your your friends or, or yeah you yeah, going over to the dark side somehow yeah it or?
0: didn't it didn't the, the that relationship didn't last very long she decided she didn't much like going to college uh, and thought I was wasting my time with it. Uh, and so, you know, this was a whole world of ultimatums, I guess. So she said, well, that is, after I'd been there a couple of terms, if you sign up for um, uh, courses in the spring term, that's a quarter system, um, uh, then it's over between us. And I said, then it's over. And that was that. So it was, you know, it was <laughs> just as it were, you know, ultimatums. Um, but uh, uh, other people, I mean, then I started hanging out with people who were in the classics department, um, uh, undergraduates, um, got to know some graduate students. Um, and so they were supportive, you know. They thought, well, this is fun. This is what we're, this is what we're doing. Um, some of the, you know, professors were more or less supportive. Uh, there was an odd division at Minnesota at that point between the historians of antiquity and the classicists. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, there was some friction back and forth there. What are you doing taking this classics course? I was asked by, not Kelly, but one of the other professors. Um, it's all right to take Greek and Latin. You need to know that, but we don't want you taking any of their other classes. Um, uh, rot your mind. Um, so-, so, so Greek and
1: Latin. So this was, this was a continuation from the old British... System where it was okay to be familiar with these languages because
0: uh, you, you, you need if you if you were going to be serious about doing ancient history you had to you had to learn the languages but the thought was um, uh, this was a course uh, taught by a very interesting guy who was a, sort of a runaway Marxist uh, uh, early on um, uh, and he was, gave a, a famous course that was called Madness and Sexuality in the Ancient World and so this. Sort of Humphrey, um, uh, professor of ancient history, sort of looked at that and said, "Rot your mind over there." <laughs> but it, well, maybe it did. But <laughs> <laughs> depends on how you define
1: rock. Anyway. exactly. So, <laughs> um, one, one more thing before before we move on to Montana State and all sorts of other yeah. things. Um, your, it seems like a strange idea that that one could have a girlfriend who decides to go off into university mm. uh, and and you haven't been paying really any attention to your schooling very much at all, mm. uh, and then all of a sudden you say, well, I can go to university as well. It seemed like the ability to gain entry, the ability mm. to just decide at the last moment is quite different than than it is today is yeah that, is
0: that fair i think it is um, uh, i mean obviously now the whole run up to applying for universities and so on is a huge thing certainly my students here at stanford or my students previously at princeton had spent you know much of their childhood and young adulthood trying to get into the right university uh, whereas um, that wasn't uh, an issue for me. Um, I was lucky in that uh, at that point, the public universities st- great state universities were still relatively open door. I mean, I had good enough grades as a high school student, so they'd let me in give me a, give me a shot. Uh, the tuition was almost nothing at that point. I didn't have to really worry about that particularly uh, and so uh, the costs of entry were, were low, uh, and it allowed people to try it. Lots of people like, you know, my girlfriend who was probably higher IQ than I've ever had. I mean, she was really a brilliant person, Is, um, yes. uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, so she tried it for a while and decided that it wasn't how she wanted to spend her life, went on to do other things. Um, Uh, But it allowed somebody like me uh, to, sort of at the last minute, say, well, maybe I'll give it a try. And it turned out it it took. Um, Sadly, I think it's much harder to do that nowadays. Um, uh, I don't know that it's impossible, but the chance of moving into a kind of of a serious research university like the University of Minnesota and then be able to just step into a class with a major scholar like Tom Kelly um, is probably not available to, to, to most people on the kind of short notice that I that I did. I mean, all of this sort of happened in, in uh, you know, this decision to, to to try classes happened in July or August. Oh, really? That way. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you had to take a good an exam and I, there was one other chance to take the exam. Um, uh, and I remember uh, that Um, I had a sort of a broken down car at that point, and um, I was, because the place I was going to take the exam was a ways away, and so I went down and I, you know, turned the key and the thing doesn't start, Um, uh, and luckily this had happened, you know, a couple of weeks before, and a friend had showed me a trick of, you know, how to jigger the carburetor you know, uh, uh, to, uh, to get it going, um, and so therefore I took the carburetor. It did then start, and I went off, and I took the exam, but if that hadn't happened, then I might not have been able to sign up for those classes, so, you know, there's all this, these ridiculous kind of serendipity things. that went Right, into this. And, and contention events. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a
1: good reason Right there, to have friends who know something
0: about cars. Exactly. Yeah. Talk I mean, with people who lesson. know something about cars. <laughs> you, know, um, uh, you spend all your life hanging around uh, you know, pointed-headed intellectuals who know lots of things that have to do with, with, with books but have nothing to do about cars, then the rest of your life may not go so well.
1: Right. <laughs> life lessons. So. So you uh, you pursued your work in classics. You went to Michigan to do to do a PhD. Yeah. Um, you were happy with hanging out with these mad guys on the other side of campus, and and so where I'd like to go um, is of course uh, I'd like to move to political aspects, to aspects mm-hmm. of Greek democracy, and, and and that's a major theme of what we what we're going to talk about. But my understanding is that your earlier research was more in terms of uh, military history yeah. and, and field archeology span and that sort of thing, right? So it was quite, quite a bit removed from that still.
0: Yeah, in, in a way it was. Uh, you've got to remember now that we moved from the 60s into the 70s um, I, uh, and uh, the era of the Vietnam War. Um, so it was a huge thing for my generation uh, of Americans, American males. Um, uh, I might well have, once again, serendipity, I might well have served in Vietnam, but I got a good lottery number um, and so didn't have to. Uh, but the whole experience of the state at war and then um, the defeat of the United States, which you know those of us who had been opposing the war recognized it to be, uh, was... Uh, a really big deal, and so I was interested in the impact of losing a war on a democratic state. That was sort of the impulse behind the uh, uh, dissertation, uh, which was on Athenian military policy after the Peloponnesian War.
1: I was going to say, so so there were immediate parallels for you with with classical Athens and the United States. In terms yeah, of the Peloponnesian yeah. War and I, the Vietnam War.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to write. You know the U.S. onto onto Athens, but right. I thought that but you couldn't
1: help but make those parallels. No, absolutely.
0: You know. uh, and I I thought that you know the experience of war, and the experience of a long and difficult war, and a long and difficult and unsuccessful war, and what happens then to um, the citizens, residents of a uh, of a country in the aftermath of that kind of defeat was very much on my mind. Uh, and on the mind of some of my uh, contemporaries, I, mean, I was just talking with a friend who teaches at Cornell, who also does Greek history, uh, and we were reminiscing. He wrote a dissertation that had some of the same kind of features, although he was interested more directly in, in Athenian politics. Uh, and he had the same impulse. It was that, that we needed to try to understand um, uh, what happens uh, to you know, a democratic state in the aftermath of military failure. So that's, so it had a little bit of a flavor of caring about politics. Um, uh, but uh, yes, I got uh, deeply into the whole question of um, uh, how the Athenians organized their military system, uh, and especially how they sought to protect their countryside um, in the period after the Peloponnesian War basically because because they'd lost an empire. In the previous period, in the 5th century, they had an empire. They could import everything they wanted, lose the war, lose the empire, and therefore thrown back on their own resources and therefore need to defend their own resources and need to therefore defend their countryside as well rather than just defending the the walled city. Uh, So uh, it got archaeological because the way you prove that this is what happens uh, is by uh, studying the remains of field fortifications in the countryside around Athens. And there are quite a lot of those still. There are quite I mean, a lot can... of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were. in the uh, So this is now the, the late 70s. There were places you could find uh, that had been noted by earlier archaeologists or sometimes by... Just travelers in the 19th century who make note of these things. And they were clear enough about where they were that if you worked carefully with maps and talked with people and uh, spent a lot of time you know, tramping around in the hills, you could find them and then map out these sites and study them. Uh, and there were things still to be found. Just make a guess that maybe there should be the remains of. Something on um, such and such a hill because it would relate to some other uh, uh, remains that you'd found and so sometimes you'd find completely new things this isn't an excavation this is just looking for um, uh, surface remains mm. um, uh, but it was it was extremely exciting it was it was it was lots of fun um, uh, and I did it for 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 years um, uh, basically I thought it was going to be my career sort of I'd take a turn to uh, uh, doing archaeology um, and archaeology and history together, archaeology to to, um, uh, explain certain historical developments. Uh, But then, uh, moving forward into the early 80s, the Greek government, um, uh, which had, for political reasons, um, uh, changed its policies, decided not to allow. Field permits uh, for foreigners for a while, uh, and so the big the uh, uh, the field project that I had raised some money for and gathered a team for and was so ground on to a halt. was ground to a halt. And I decided it's time to do something else. Um, so that was a, another sort of career change, just because in a sense I realized that if I wanted to want to get tenure and so on, I couldn't depend on the vagaries of the Greek Archaeological Service.
1: Sure. So there was a, there was a strong practical, pragmatic aspect to this, mm-hmm. but um, there's also the sense that presumably some, some questions were, were rattling around in your mind for some time in terms of how the Greek democratic state lasted as long as it did, how mm-hmm. it was as stable as it was, what was really going on, the balance of mm-hmm. powers between the the elite and the, the everyday guy on the, on the yeah. street. So was this something that you were thinking about just in passing, or was this...
0: Uh, no, I'd you? been thinking about this pretty seriously for a long time. Uh, uh, so this goes back into deep history again. Um, uh, when I was in high school, um, uh, I was in uh, a pretty difficult high school, um, uh, and that's a sort of a long story, but I was a, ostensibly a voluntary transfer into a, into a, a quite a troubled uh, high school um, uh, uh, and i had my upbringing had been you know, relatively comfortable middle class american um, uh, and transferring into this you know school in which there were a lot of Kids who weren't comfortable, middle-class Americans, um, uh, uh, was a real experience for me. I mean, it was a. a uh, 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 so I I uh, became very interested in this whole idea of how those who are not among the elite or not even among the sort of the middling um, relate to elites. Um, I knew. People at that point who had had you know really very sort of elite educations, going to private schools, and and so on. It's another girlfriend story, but we'll skip that. (laughs) Um, uh, No dental work involved. uh, No dental work involved in that one. No, no, we won't go there. Uh, At any rate, um, uh, so.
1: uh, so you were sensitive to this to, to this notion from personal experience yeah, of the haves and the have-nots. That's and the, right. And so, this, that. so the
0: whole idea, so, so this was really quite a quite a uh, uh, quite pointed uh, for me, um, and so I was reading for my dissertation, which was you know on this military changes after the Peloponnesian War, but I came across a couple of passages I just didn't understand um, in the Orator Demosthenes. Uh, uh, he seemed to be contradicting himself um, in uh, a single speech and making comments that were blatantly elitist, talking about this sort of opponent as being this lower class guy who didn't really deserve the attention of the Athenian citizens. And then at the same time saying that his opponent was this guy who pandered to the elite and didn't care about the ordinary people and so on. And I thought, well, how do you get away with that? How do you get away with both being, you know, I'm more elite than my opponent, and also more of a regular guy than my opponent all at once? And thought, there's got to be something going on here. Um, and so I was sensitive to it because I sort of was interested in these things about how people make claims to elite privilege and and how other people simply. Can't make those claims. Um, so that's that began uh, a sort of side project of collecting uh, notes on what I called to myself at that point, you know, elitism and anti-elitism in Athenian thought, yeah. and that's what I turned to when you know the so within you know, a month of getting turned down on the permit uh, to do the archaeological work, um, I was embarked on this uh, uh, elitism and not anti-elitism project I that turned into a...
1: And I'm guessing that one of the the real advantages of that, other than having to negotiate the, uh, the coup-riddled Greek government with getting getting permits and so forth, is the idea that there were there were lots of texts available. If, if you right. want to look at, at the art of rhetoric and what people were, were doing and how they were engaging with the masses and so forth, you could really do a, a comprehensive systematic study of that over a long period of time.
0: No, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I'd, I'd gotten very interested, especially in, uh, as a, still as a graduate student, in um, political rhetoric, in the way in which um, uh, speakers to large democratic audiences make claims. So the first article I ever published was on uh, views of sea power in the fourth century BC Attic orators. and So I'd read the orators pretty carefully, I had an idea that there's more to them than just a mine of historical facts or a way to think about Greek prose, which was the way that it had been studied primarily in the past, and I'd sort of had this intuition that by thinking about what the orators are saying and not saying and contradictions, and what what seemed to contradictions to me, there would be a way to understand more deeply how the Athenians thought about important things. So initially military history, sea power, but then more broadly um, the role of elites and non-elites within a democratic society.
1: And were you thinking uh, in terms of connecting this with the longevity of the of the athenian democratic experiment and say and asking these questions which don't seem to be asked very much i'm not a classicist mm. but don't seem to be asked very much uh, when one just gets an introduction to to Greek history, there's this sense of, oh, these wonderful Greeks, they came, they, they came along. And again, it's usually the Greeks. Yeah, but, <laughs> yep. right? and, and people don't say what happened in Sparta and what yeah. happened in Corinth right. and what happened here and right. what happened right. there. But it's, it's these Greeks, and they had this brilliant idea of democracy, and, yeah. and, and that still lives today in a seamless transition. And, and of yeah. course, there are all sorts of very painful and awkward truths that are related in that synopsis. Sure. And one is that the Athenians were quite unique in in this particular regard. Uh, and, and there's a sense of, well, how did... The other, of course, is that maybe their democracy is a little bit different than what we have now, and I want sure. to explore that in, mm-hmm. in, in, in more detail. But once you start reading a little bit about this and thinking, there are these questions of, how did this actually work and, 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 yeah. and why did it last for as long as it did and, and right. what's actually going on there? So when you started looking at these texts and, and, and examining rhetoric, mm-hmm. were you thinking in terms of this might give me some insight into that question of stability and these bigger questions of the, of the Greek Demo- or the Athenian democratic system?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it really was. I mean, this is sort of my generation of Greek historians, sort of change the nature of the question about the period after the Peloponnesian War, the fourth century BC. And instead of seeing that as a period of decline and failure, which is the way it had been often portrayed, we tend to think the remarkable thing is how vibrant it is um, and how well Athens, for example, recovers from the war, what happens in the rest of the uh, Greek world in this post-war world. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so the, the, the question really from the beginning for me uh, was explaining why democracy was such a success rather than why it was such a failure. So that was sort of the old question, well, why doesn't it last forever? Um, uh, uh, my question was, why does it last for more than 20 minutes, um, given that there were various reasons to think it might not have? And, that has to do with the structure of, of ancient democracies. Uh, but especially if you imagine this as being a world in which there were people who were quite privileged, it was not a world that had eliminated inequality or even pretended to have el- eliminated inequality in um, economic terms or in terms of access to education and all of these sorts of things. Well, how did you actually create a world in which elites and masses, coexisted over time uh, under the uh, majoritarian system of rule, Uh, under what circumstances could the majority of ordinary Athenians accept leadership from elites without um, uh, simply turning over the system to them, without sort of falling into what political scientists call elite capture right sure. and, and
1: i I want to explore this in, in more detail. Um, and maybe you can 't answer this question, but um, as I say, one of the things that I want to explicitly bring to bear is this question of uh, exploring the relevance of the findings that you have made and your your views of mm-hmm. classic Athenian democracy with what 's going on today. You mentioned the Vietnam War going on as mm-hmm. uh, as an obvious backdrop um, were you Were you thinking then um, about looking for general truths about the democratic process insofar as how they may or may not relate to any democracy, namely the one that that you're living in now? And so uh, let me be more explicit. My understanding of of, uh, Thucydides, which is uh, uh, not huge, sadly, but my understanding is that uh, he was one of these historians that believed very, very strongly in the relevance of history insofar as... Mm -hmm helping future generations you know we're going to look at here are the disease here, here are the signs of the plague so mm-hmm. that if you guys 300 years from now which should come across yeah. this you'll know what it is yeah. right. Were were you influenced by Thucydides or your own particular views to the extent mm-hmm. that you started thinking that way as well looking at generalized aspects of hey here's the test case for democracy I've got a democracy which ain't going 100% where I happen to be living. Yeah. Were you thinking about extrapolating those things?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I really was. Um, I, uh, I had always had some taste for ancient meets modern or uh, thinking about how antiquity may tell us something that we care about or, or shed some light about something that, that, that we care about. I was lucky early in my um, career, I, Got a job at Montana State University uh, out of graduate school and then uh, was allowed to take a a leave and went to a a research center where I was lucky enough to talk with some really smart social scientists who helped me see the ways in which the kind of questions I was asking were in fact related to the kind of questions that social scientists are currently um, asking. So pretty early on, I started to think of this project about masses and elites or elitism and anti-elitism as a way to test the um, so-called iron law of oligarchy, the theory that had been really important in social science since the early 20th century when it was first devised uh, by Robert Michels. Um, so what's that? Uh, it was a guy called Robert. No, no, no. But what, what's the law? Oh, the law, just uh, the iron law of oligarchy, says uh, basically that um, behind every form of uh, government, uh, government, there, there's of, an of, a Political or organization. There will be an oligarchy, or an oligarchy yes. will emerge. Uh, whether it's uh, uh, you start out with a monarchy, you'll quickly um, uh, devolve to an oligarchy. You start out with a democracy. You'll quickly devolve to an oligarchy and it's just a necessary role, um, uh, rule um, uh, arising from the necessity of organization. So Mikkels had been a socialist basically studying political parties um, in Germany and elsewhere. And uh, his studies showed him that uh, the socialist parties of Europe um, uh, ultimately were taken over by elites. Um, and he's was sort of depressed by this. He ended up not being so depressed by it and decided that the fascists in Italy had it right after all. Um, but that's a, different a, story. <laughs> a sad story. Uh, but uh, but initially, um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was meant to be, um, he, he, he was hoping, I think, to find different results and was convinced by his own social science that right. uh, this was simply the way the world went. So I was very interested to test that. Um, it looked to me, and still looks to me, as if Athens had not fallen to this right. iron law. Um, so then the question is why? I mean, under what circumstances, under what conditions would you be able to maintain a really robust democracy in which ordinary citizens really do keep purchase on uh, the doings and the sayings of, of, of elites? Uh, and that seemed to me to be hugely important, because if you get one example of a test of an iron law, you prove it is not an iron sure, law. Sure, it's a counterexample. Uh, yeah. One counterexample eliminates it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an iron law. You can say it's a general tendency, um, but at least you say it's not something that's inevitable and therefore it's no longer foolish sure. um, to think about.
1: Especially if your counterexample is as salient and as, as, <coughs> as notable in, in democratic history as as classical Athenian democracy. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big counterexample. Yeah, I mean, right that's, there. it's
0: always been a great, a great sort of advantage I've had in talking with uh, uh, other social scientists, other humanists, is that everybody's heard of this one. You don't have to say, well, I've got a really obscure one. Um, we know rather little about it, but from the tiny things I think we know, some Pacific say, island somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we know a lot about it, yeah. and uh, it has certain claim to be the first, you know, large scale. Um, uh, a democracy, at least it has a lot of um, documentation. So yeah, if we, if, we, if we can disprove it with Athens, we've done some real work. And that's yeah. a lot of what I've done so ever since.
1: So, so now I want to examine some of those ideas and I want to question you and probe them in terms of how they might be relevant to contemporary democratic systems. Mm-hmm. So, um, And you're going to have to help me when I when I sure. misstep, which I'm sure I will do with some regularity, so um, so one aspect certainly from mass and elite in, in democratic Athens is this idea of of discourse, as mm-hmm. I understand it, right? Mm-hmm. This interchange, as you you mentioned rhetoric, you mentioned Demosthenes and and, yeah. and the tools of rhetoric and how um, how he or or any orator or any politician right. is, is interacting with the body politic, with the mass of individuals, right. and, and vice versa, really, how, how they yeah. have to be responsive to each other's needs. Um, and that this interaction, this discourse, is an essential aspect of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a thriving and stable mm-hmm. democratic system. Um, so when I look today at, at that, I think obviously different circumstance mm-hmm. because uh, we need intermediaries. We don't have a situation where we have people going into the Agora and, and, and making mm-hmm. arguments and other people listening. And and those intermediaries, at least from my perspective, is, is what we now call the media. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a sense that, first of all, that analogy holds, mm-hmm. and therefore in a contemporary democracy, the media has an essential role to play? Mm-hmm. And and secondly, um, w- are they doing a good job and what could we reasonably be doing Mm. from a structural perspective, if they're not, to make them do a better job?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, yes, the basic argument of this this book on mass and elite uh, was that political communication in Athens was not a one-way street from elite speaker to mass audience. That's the way it had often been portrayed, Uh, the way uh, the Athenians made their rules uh, was by gathering in a large assembly, several thousand citizens. Um, uh, A lottery chosen council would have set an agenda for the meeting. Uh, And then the guy who was chosen as president of the assembly for a day would ask through a herald, We'll say here's the agenda, you know war and peace with Sparta, or raise taxes or lower taxes, whatever it is. Um, uh, who of the Athenians has advice to give uh, and then a bunch of the people who were, in a sense, full time politicians, although not in the period I was primarily dealing with this fourth century b c not not people with holding offices. Would be clustered around the front of the speaker's platform saying, You know, I do, I do. Um, uh, and so they'd get, uh, you know, one of them would get recognized and he would go up to the speaker's platform and then he would get to speak for exactly as long as the Athenians were willing to listen to him, which might be 15 seconds and it might be, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, but it's not going to be longer than that. Um, and then somebody else would get recognized and so on. Um, uh, so the the guy would speak for as long as he was saying things that the audience thought was worth hearing, uh, and as soon as he did not say that, he would simply be shouted down you know, basically as one individual without amplification and so on, you 're having to speak to this very large audience in this kind of theater kind of kind of area, um, so you can be heard but not if. Several thousand people are saying, sit down, you idiot, and let somebody who really knows something say something. Um, uh, So uh, uh, the whole point is is that the speakers then um, had to be intensely attuned to their audience. They had to make claims that I'm worthy of listening to because and then they have to come up quickly with an answer to right. that I'm worthy of li- listening to because, uh, and then they have to also say, and I am aligned, my interests, what I'm gonna say is aligned, aligned with the yours. interests of our country, okay. of our community, of you, the ordinary people, because, right. you have to fill that in very quickly, right. um, and then, and here's my proposal, and here's what it is. Uh, if you don't do that right in Athens, if you either seem to be somebody who might be perfectly um, uh, well-intentioned, but doesn't know anything more than the ordinary guys, why are we listening to you? We need to listen to somebody who knows something. Uh, And um, if, oh yeah, I'm an expert, and so shut up, you lowly rabble, and listen to your superiors, have a feeling this guy's interests aren't terribly well aligned with us, the lowly rabble. So in either case, we're going to shout that guy down. So that, that was the basic idea in this mass and elite um, book is that the Athenian speakers in the law courts as well as in these um, uh, legislative assemblies had to align what they say with the interests of the people and prove their alignment through what they said, through discourse, right. and also had to demonstrate their elite credentials. Here's why you know I really know something that's worth all of us taking into, into account. So the question then is how do you, how do you do get now? something like that yeah. in a modern world? How do yeah. you create, instead of the you know, talking heads, speaking down to all of us, one way communication, um, uh, how do you create a way in which um, uh, the people, uh, the citizenry can uh, uh, talk back to those in leadership positions and test them, not right. just once every four years in an election, but right. um, every time they open their, their mouths. <laughs> right. oh, every time they open their mouths, well, that's... Well, it, that it, every, every time they open their mouths in public, asking for a vote by the people, right? Because this is it's, it's, it's very, you know, the, the people are voting on, on everything, um, pretty much, in, in, in Athens. Um, so, uh, uh, so then the question is, you know, what rule does the media have in that they can certainly um, help to create uh, the credentials of the people in leadership positions. So why should I listen to you know politician X? Well, if I've, if the media has done its job, I have I believe that this person has certain credentials, certain expertise, certain um, abilities, uh, and uh, the same thing in terms of are this individual's. Is or her interests aligned with my own? Well, once again, the media, if it does its job, um, uh, can show me how that's either true or, or, or false. Um, uh, uh, but then, how do I, as an individual, actually get purchase on, um, so I say, all right, I'll, I'll let you start speaking, because the media has shown me that you know, there's reason to let you start speaking, but how do I jump in with my fellow citizens to say, now you're getting off the point. Uh, uh, Now you seem to be deviating in ways that, uh, and so we'd like to hear somebody else's opinion on this. Thank you very much. That's not as obvious. Uh, And uh, here, I'm not going to, you know, I'm at Stanford uh, where there are people who know a whole lot more than I do about um, how social media is working and might work. But I think that there are, Potentially, ways to imagine um, uh, social media taking a role uh, in talking back to politicians, and I think that's actually beginning to happen already uh, in ways that are having, you know, un uh, well, having uh, outcomes that are that are are unclear. Um, Mm. uh, So I think that politicians these days are trying to figure out. How do I use social media? How do I respond to social media? How the media, the official media, um, the, uh, is trying to figure out how do we use social media? How do we you know, uh, respond to social media? So I think I think we're in a we're in a, a time when nobody really knows very clearly the answer to that question. I I I, I don't. But I think it's it's. It, it's incumbent upon all of us to be thinking hard about it. So, so let me be devil's advocate for
1: a moment. Um, I see that, um, that we might be able to use technology, social media or otherwise, to have this feedback loop from the people back to the, to the politicians or, or the elite or whatever it is that one wants to call them. Um, I might say, well, that's all well and good, but the Greeks did something different than what we're doing now, and why should we necessarily want to be doing that? What makes this the mm-hmm. optimal mm-hmm. way to, to move forwards in a democracy? I mm-hmm. mean, there, there's an assumption there which is, this is the way a democracy should be, or this is, th- this is some abstract general mm-hmm. generality, this is a, and the Greeks have one particular instantiation and in that we're off mm-hmm. track and we should do something to, to do something similar using technology. Um, convince me that that should necessarily
0: be the case. Right, right. Um, So this is really the the two ways to think about it. Um, uh, One is the problem of elite capture. um, And then the other is the problem of uh, uh, economic inequality that turns into political inequality. Um, uh, So I think both of these are really live issues today. Um, uh, And I think most Americans, if told that the way it's going, and the way it's going to go, is the people who are running Washington are going to run, run the world, run your world, and they don't have to listen to you anymore. It's, it's they're the they're the real ones who are in power, and, and there's some um, symbolic thing every four years that the you symbolic did. thing is yeah it's just it's 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 really it's meaningless, yeah. um, I, uh, or they figured out how to end run that um, so. Um, live with it. I think if people, if it was put in these terms to the American citizens, they would tend to say, I don't want to live with it. Now, maybe they'd say, yeah, that's the way it's going. We just have to. But I think they would feel there's something awful if you sort of describe what is elite capture? It's what, we're, it's what we've got or what we're getting, um, and there's no way around it. Um, I think there would be a sense of gee, that's not the way it was supposed to go, yeah. okay? And, or say, all right, that's on the one hand, and P.S., um, uh, although it might have been always the case that some people in your country, our country, have uh, more wealth, more influence, it's now going to be completely uncapped. The most powerful people are going to be the wealthiest people. You will be exactly as important as your paycheck. Um, So if somebody has a thousand times your wealth, there is a thousand times better person than you. Live with it. I think once again, something visceral in a democratic society or a society that has any history of being democratic that says, no, that's wrong. Okay, fine. Guy's a thousand times wealthier than I am. Good, bad, or indifferent. she earned it and maybe she didn't. Um, uh, but she isn't a thousand times better person than I am, shouldn't have a thousand times more influence in the society as I do. Um, uh, and so, once again, I think the sense that, boy, it really would go wrong if that's the way it ended up. So, that's the reason to, I think, talk about how might um, the citizenry of a democratic society restrain the elite from this kind of robust form of capture or restrain inequality, political inequality from following um, uh, economic inequality in a way that I think there are some people who believe that there's a lot of risks, uh, that that's, that is what's happening and that's what could happen. So I think this is why it's worth looking at a society that was democratic for a couple of hundred years um, uh, uh, that did restrain elite capture, um, did live with wealth inequality, but kept wealth inequality from simply being translated into power inequality in a a one-to-one sort of way, Uh, and ask if there are ways at much greater scale than anything in a Greek city-state, we could do something similar. Are there there institutional mechanisms? Are there discursive mechanisms? Um, uh, Are there ways to change the nature of culture or education that would uh, at least push back against that sort of, as I see it, double evil from the perspective of thinking democracy is a good thing, um, of the elites running everything in their own interest and um, uh, uh, wealth inequality being directly translated into political inequality.
1: Is that frustration building in the United States, Uh, that frustration that we, we are well and truly on our road, on the road to elite capture, and that our democracy is being perverted because here 's my problem with this mm. um, it, you you had me at hello as the expression goes 'm I'm, I'm, I'm completely uh, I completely believe what it is that you're saying but i don 't see as, a, as an external observer the anger and the frustration mm-hmm. that one might expect to see given how this society has changed over the last 25 years in terms of income inequality and disparity and, and, and signs of a clear oligarchy developing in all sorts of different political levels. Um, and, and if there was this sort of anger and frustration and these forces of potential mm-hmm. social change, one of the first things I would imagine that people would look at would be other contemporary states rather than necessarily classic Athenian mm-hmm. states and say, well, how's Sweden doing this mm-hmm. kind of stuff? And, and how is Germany mm-hmm. doing this kind of stuff? And, mm-hmm. and and I don't get that sense here yeah. that, that there is that sort of um, anger and concern on the street. But maybe I'm wrong. Do you, mm-hmm. do you and, and do you feel that if there was that, um, do you feel there's enough attention being paid to other Uh, contemporary social structures and governments?
0: Yeah, um, I just, I don't know how to measure, I mean, this is a nice social science empirical question um, uh, about measuring the level of um, anxiety or despair or anger or frustration. Um, So when I say that if it were put in these terms to the American people, I think that they would say, no, that's horrible. I don't want that. Um, uh, Whether it is being put in those terms to the American people in a way that is, you know, at all as stark as I've put it, I tend to think probably not. It's not in the interest of anybody who wants to get elected office to... Say those sorts of things, um,
1: and, and the other my other point when I was darkly alluding to the media is I'm not sure it's in the media's interest either. So well,
0: I think that that may well be right, uh, exactly right. I mean they are undergoing, you know, the the media are clearly undergoing huge changes. Um, uh, not at all clear whether uh, uh, any newspaper is going to have a viable business model over the next twenty years or. How many of them will, if any of them do? Um, uh, ditto other forms of, of serious, one of, might imagine serious media as opposed to purely entertainment media. Um, so yeah, they're in some ways, I think, running scared. Uh, they want to figure out the next thing, but they don't want to, uh, uh, as it were, kill themselves before they figured out the next thing. Um, so uh, it's not entirely clear that that message is being made in ways that people are, are are taking it up on the other hand, you know thomas Piketty's extremely technical huge tome of a of a book on inequality It's you know, being is being purchased it's being purchased yeah, and it's being <laughs> talked about and it's being so so we, you know this i think is one of the most startling um, uh uh things in in at least uh Uh, recent um, book buying history uh, that uh, nobody predicted this, you know, Harvard University Press, I don't think said, ha ha, we're going to run, run, you know, a a thousand academic titles over the next hundred years on the back of this one book. You know, what a clever thing to do. I I don't think anybody supposed that was going to happen. So the fact that it is getting all this attention does suggest that at least the issue of, structural inequality um, uh, is one that at least resonates uh, out there. Uh, And, you know, once again, I don't want to get too far outside of things that I really can claim to know something about. Um, uh, But, you know, we tend to think that the objection is going to come from, I mean, somebody who grew up in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, uh, protesting the Vietnam War and so on, tends to think, ah, oh, the objection's going to come on the left. But I think in many ways the Tea Party um, uh, uh, is channeling a lot of this kind of anger. They don't like the current crop of the elites who are running things. Now, I don't think the Tea Party folk have you know, any... Solution to the problem, yeah, but I that's think that's not there,
1: what I asked you're, you're you're pointing to signs of, of anger.
0: That's right so. Yeah, yeah, I think so I think there's 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 at least if you want to look at for straws in the wind and you're willing to look outside of the ordinary um, uh, Places, I think I think there, there are some straws in the wind um, Looking to where are you can look in the in the modern world um, yeah, I just don't think Europe's going to do it. Um, uh, you know, at the moment, you don't want the European economy. Um, uh, uh, Europe as a as a sort of a federal project is going to take a lot of work. Um, uh, they don't seem to have a very obvious way forward um, uh, uh, between the people who are advocating more austerity and the ones who are saying this is crazy, austerity is going to kill the right. possibility of economic growth. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, the uh, you know, waves of ultranationalism that are increasingly the big story, uh, at least at the margins of mm. um, most European, major European states at, at, at this point, is not something that, you know, one wants to say, "Gosh, that's terrific!" You right. know, what we we needed some neo Nazis to sort of spark up the place. Um, uh, uh, so I don't, I so don't. There's th- no obvious poster boy. That I don't think th- I, I don't feel there is. Uh, uh, I mean that, uh, and you know, Americans are simply you know, the United States came into existence as the anti Europe. Right, we just aren't used to looking over our shoulders and saying, "Oh well, you know, our elders and betters um, uh, knew had it right all along." Uh, so I, I think I think that's sort of a non-starter um, to say, uh, uh, "Gee, um, uh, you know, Sweden is doing it pretty well. Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we do it just like Sweden?" Mm. Um, uh, I mean, the other thing is is that, of course, the United States is. Is, is is a very different place than most European states, and in, in which we're not a we're not a, we're not an ethnic an ethno national state in the same way that um, European states imagine themselves as being ethno national states. Um, uh, so the United States is a um, you know, famously a mosaic of ethnicities, sure. and one of which can claim uh, to have the to so be the soul of the country, as, a, as opposed to France. I mean, you can, for example, I mean, say, all right, whatever your whatever your particular color and so on is. Still, Frenchness is something that is virtually tangible. Is very tangible, um, and we don't have that in that same sort of ethno-national sort of sort of claim. So we have to do it all based on um, politics and. Uh, uh, values, uh, you know, what is it to be an American? It is to believe in a certain set of values, not in the basic, you know, ethno-national kind of Americanness, although not, not that people don't try to do that.
1: Right? So we talked about um, um, this mode of communication between the elites and the masses, to use your words, but anyway, the the, 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 the guy on the street, as it were, mm-hmm. Um, comparing uh, all the mechanisms available to the average Athenian citizen, and of course, we have to make all sorts of put all sorts of asterisks into what, a, what that <coughs> means, but, but uh, that were available in real time then, and whether or not we can try to incorporate something like that using technology and so forth mm-hmm. to have a feedback mechanism so that we don't find ourselves in a situation where the elites just tell us what to do and like it or lump it. Um, As a a fundamental aspect of of core democratic principles, Mm -hmm. uh, another one that you highlight is political dissent. Mm -hmm. And you mention that it's something that, um, when you again look at uh, at the 200 years of, uh, or roughly 200 years of Athenian democracy, interrupted every so often, but by and large, that period of time, um, there was a wide spectrum of very, important and influential people who were saying all sorts of dissenting things mm-hmm. about Athenian democracy and the tolerance that democracy had mm-hmm. to be able to absorb that, maybe even encourage that to some mm-hmm. extent, or certainly allow for that. Um, if you compare and contrast that with the situation today, do you see enough of that? Do you have a sense that on the ground today, yes, that's a box that we can check. There are, there are enough people voicing seriously significant critical views. You mentioned Thomas Piketty mm-hmm. just now. Mm-hmm. Um, that we don't have to worry so much about that? Or is that, is that an issue of concern for you now?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I think that you know, the, the question of what it is to be a public intellectual, um, how uh, important public intellectuals are in the United States is one that I've thought about a little bit, although it's not my main area. I, what I tend to think about the Athenian situation is that the reality of democracy in Athens and the success of democracy in Athens is what pushed various elites like Thucydides or Plato or Aristotle um, uh, into a position of having to justify some other form of political organization that would be better than democracy. So my work on, on dissent essentially said that the whole Western tradition of political thought to the extent that it's grounded in these texts that were written in Athens by people living in Athens, whether or not they were Athenians uh, by birth, uh, is um, in part to be explained uh, through the challenge that an effective democracy gave to um, uh, uh, these uh, aristocratic elites that instead of simply saying, well, if the better sort of people were to run things, things would be run rather better around here. <laughs> and as you mentioned, the democracy was interrupted a couple of times in the late fifth century, and the better sort of people did take over and made a holy mess of the place um, uh, as was generally acknowledged even by. Plato, whose relatives it was, um, uh, who were centrally involved with the second of these interruptions. Uh, So if it's not just the case that there are sort of a bunch of better people, the sort of people one goes to dinner parties with, if you're Plato, um, uh, who, if they were to take this place over, would obviously, because of their intrinsic betterness, do a rather better job of it. If that's off the table, because, yeah, we tried that. And... It was a mess. Then the question is, well, is it just that democracy is as good as it can be? And you think, well, maybe not. You know, and that's, I think, what really generates this remarkable explosion of of, of political thought, which you know we've in some ways been uh, uh, dealing with ever since. Um, uh, uh, some of the Great monuments of, of of Western political thought, obviously written just at this time, um, just at this place. So the question is, do we have anything like that? Um, it's not obvious that that, that we do, um, uh, and uh, it's partly we don't because we don't have people who are willing to declare themselves to be, you know, aristocratic elites like Plato's lot, who says, well, there must be some answer to this whole democracy mess, um, uh, and. Uh, Uh, Or this democracy thing that seems to be going so well, Um, and yet it's a mess. Because surely it must be a mess, because it can't really be the. the,
1: Well, the the modern equivalents might might be not so much the diehard aristocrats, but they might be people who say. Uh, as again, I don't want to hold him up as a poster yeah. boy, but as Thomas Piketty is saying, yeah. we're going off the rails. Right. We're losing our, our 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 core democratic principles, or egalitarian principles, yeah. or moral principles, or what, whatever you want to say. Right. I, I mean, dissent can take all sorts of different different perspectives, and mm-hmm. and so, um, just the idea that that the democracy that we're in now can hear serious. Criticism, yeah. negative criticism that's directed towards it is a sign in and of itself of a healthy democracy, presumably, or, or of at least of a healthy structure that can advance.
0: Right. So there's sort of two ways of, of, of thinking about this. Um, uh, I mean, one is that uh, uh, the best sort of dissent in a democracy is um, internal dissent, is saying that um, our democratic values that are the the values of the democracy are being violated um, by our practice, and we need to return to those values or, or clarify those values or perfect those values and then find a way to get back to them. Um, the other way is the kind of Plato way is to say you've got the wrong values. There are better values. Um, uh, that uh, the, you know, the ones that you cherish so by dear you know, Democrat are actually false values Mm -hmm. and there are higher and better values. Um, So I think that uh, for Piketty and, I mean, that would, to the extent that I would think of myself as, you know, some sort of a critical intellectual. Um, are, it's are you more giving, more are you giving
1: f- renewed hope, by the way, to writing a bestseller now after all this? Or no, you think, you I will
0: begin- never write a bestseller.
1: Well, you never know. He might have said the same thing five years ago. Oh, it's true. It's true.
0: Yes, yes. Yes. I wouldn't mind uh, <laughs> if, uh, uh, if people wanted to you know, buy millions of copies of my next book, but I'm, I'm not holding my breath. Right. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, uh, no, you. no. It's, uh, it's a, but, it's a, but it's a nice thought because, as you say, I don't think Piketty wrote this to be a bestseller. I think he wrote Surely it to be a serious... serious explanation of um, the the arguments, accessible to an intelligent audience, but uh, not a kind of a uh, book that he imagined was going to be sold in in airports, Um, and yet, there you have it. Uh, So anyway, I think that that, you can have really great criticism that goes either way um, uh, that says, uh, let's return to, you know, what it really meant to be, you know citizens of a democratic state, let's think about freedom, let's think about equality, let's think about um, uh, dignity. Um, uh, uh, and I would welcome the thought that there would people who would stand outside of it and said, let's think about a different set of values. Now, those aren't going to be my values. I'm going to push against it. Um, but I think this may be one of the big challenges that we're going to see from uh, the rise of China right. uh, is that there's uh, been a lot of discussion um, uh, these, uh, recently about um, uh, whether a whole separate set of values, which are sometimes called Confucian values or Eastern values, or you know there's all kinds of uh, locutions for this, might be, um, uh, better than uh, the attachment to the freedom, equality, dignity, sort of triad that uh, lies at the center of democracy. Maybe obedience um, uh, and piety um, uh, and um, uh, uh, respect uh, for those above you in the hierarchy um, uh, can be recuperated. Right. Once again, I don't see the way forward to that, but I think it's would be a good thing for a democracy to have people who are making these kinds of arguments such that the Democrats need to push back and say, well, what's wrong with that picture? Just as Democrats pushed back against sort of the Plato picture or the um, uh, other of the, of the critical elites of Athens.
1: Right. I I guess there are two things to say, which is, uh, in the first case, what tends to happen in those situations, uh, at least in my experience, is that the people who hold those values um, are by definition not interested in a democratic process of exchange, uh, uh, so that it it precludes the idea of having uh, a a free and open debate, as Mm -hmm. it were, about those very values systemically, because they're not interested in in, in actually doing that. And if they hold the keys to the castle, as it were, uh, it's not clear you're actually going to have that sort of debate, tautologically. But I I do want to pick up on that, because I think there's an interesting intellectual Mm -hmm. point behind all of this, which is, if you, Josh Ober, are enunciating a set of values that you think are somehow resonant with the human condition, which is to Mm -hmm. say, general universal values Mm -hmm. that we should all aspire to, or that we should all fundamentally resonate Mm -hmm. with, then then that necessarily, uh, I, I think, diminishes any argument that, uh, that, that people will have about a different set of values. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, let me be more precise in what it is that I'm rambling on about. So when I ask people if there's anything to Asian values, mm-hmm. which, which was, I think, the term 20 years ago, and as you say, Confucian yeah. values and all the rest of this, the general response by people, at least the people whom I'm asking,
0: mm-hmm. say,
1: no, 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 this is just a trope that people who want to cling to power use, mm-hmm. and, and they, don't, they don't even necessarily really believe that themselves, or it's just mm-hmm. a, a mechanism by which they are furthering their own oligarchic cause. Mm-hmm. They're saying, no, 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 you have to re- respect obedience, and what mm-hmm. we mean by obedience is obedience to, to us, who happen to, mm-hmm. uh, to be in charge. Um, but then there are people who say, when I push them a little bit and say, well, does this mean that at some level all societies are the same and that mm-hmm. all societies really do do believe these particular values? Um, there's usually a little bit of waffling because clearly mm. the first order all societies are not the same. Right. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little. So where do, where do you fall in, in, in that clearly? It seems sure. to me that you're... Right. You believe in the universal nature, the inherent universal nature of these of these human values, as instantiated by by this general democratic framework. Is that fair, or is that not?
0: Yeah, it is. It is, uh, and this is a this, this sort of does take us on a slightly different path because I told you it wasn't um, scripted. No, that's right. And no, and I'm I am very happy to to go on that path because I've I've spent some time um, thinking about it, and that's really at the core of the next big project I'm hoping to, to work on. Um, so, uh, so this is really the, the path that's sort of laid for me by Aristotle, um, and it really uh, gets us to thinking about um, the, the whole question of human nature and sort of what kind of beings are we? Right? So uh, I think that you can have all kinds of reasons to think that you'd prefer democracy to alternatives without... Going on this Aristotelian path, I'll sketch in just a, just a minute. So it doesn't mean that, in order to be a democrat or to sure. prefer democracy to other alternatives, you have to buy into this argument. It's not lots a necessary of condition. condition. No, it's not. It, it's not. I mean, I think there's there's lots of good reasons. Um, uh, you know, Winston Churchill got the most famous one of these. You know, it's the um, uh, worst of all possible forms of government except for all of the ones that have been tried from time to time. So, you know, he's sort of a, talk about diminishing. I mean, that's uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so Churchill thought, yes, democracy, but didn't have sort of my sense that uh, there are human nature reasons to think it's, it, it, it's, it is um, uh, a good in itself. So here's the basic. Simple Aristotelian argument, which I think is right, bracketing the thought that Aristotle made fundamental mistakes um, uh, in his many of his premises, right? He had just made mistakes about biology, he made mistakes about you know, human capacity of people who weren 't like himself weren 't you know, uh, uh, elite uh, uh, Greek males. Um, Uh, So there's lots, you can't just read out from all of Aristotle, um, uh, the right, uh, uh, you
1: distinguish between these useless arguments and these extra baggage arguments, so you pair away a lot of yeah. A lot that's of right. I
0: think there's lots of there are lots of um, uh, uh, arguments that are made in Aristotle's great political works, *The Politics*, uh, especially um, that we can't make any use of they sort of useless arguments, and or or just they're just baggage that we don't need to carry along. So well, this is so you're going to enunciate a view that's inspired by Aristotle. That's so right. right. It's Aristotelian because it comes from reading Aristotle, but it is not Aristotle's. If Aristotle were here, I think he would say, no, 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 you don't really understand. You're failing to pay attention to the important bits. <laughs> Fine. I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a brief for this being Aristotle's view. Um, so basically, what Aristotle says famously is humans are political animals, right? And by this he means we are a subset of all of the animals of the world with certain very specific kind of features so basically aristotle divides the animal kingdom initially into animals that are group forming and live in groups and then animals that live out on their own so you think about orangutans um, for example or bumblebees you know what they're animals that live individual lives. Obviously, they have ways to mate, but they, they live as individuals. And then you have lots of lots of animals that live in groups, um, herds of antelope and schools of fish and flocks of birds, and um, troops of primates and so on, and humans. Right? Um, so we're in the group forming. It's possible for humans to live alone, as Aristotle points out, but we tend not to do it. Um, uh, we live in societies. We live in we live in groups. Okay, so uh, you then take the group-forming animals, and you further subdivide them, and you subdivide the group-forming animals into uh, uh, group-forming animals that create um, uh, public goods, goods in common. Um, uh, so in this case, he says um, you have bees and ants. So bees create. Honey, or make honey, um, that all the bees of the hive live on. So the honey is the public good that is that is um, created by the bees, and they and they live on it together. Ants gather certain kinds of ants gather grain in similar kinds of ways, um, uh, and then he says. Uh, humans. So he's not doing Darwinian taxonomy here. He's not saying we're descended directly from ants or bees. He's not silly like this. He doesn't have any theory of evolution, but he doesn't suppose it's anything like that. But he says that our behavior, we want to think about what kind of animals we are. We're like social insects because we produce public goods um, that we consume together in a society. So we might say security or welfare whatever various sorts of public goods uh, are, are produced. Uh, Aristotle thought that humans are the most political of all animals because we produce the most complex uh, forms, and he also sought the morally highest forms of public goods um, uh, through our unique capacities. Okay, so this is then, so that's the Aristotle's taxonomy. We're super political animals, and that's why he says humans are political animals. We're the most political of all animals, not because we're strategic, or we form political parties, or it's not political in that sense. In fact, he thought those were unfortunate sort of side effects of being human, Um, uh, but rather because we have the capacity to create um, really rich forms of public goods that benefit each and all of us um, within a a community. Uh, So uh, the the second idea then um, is uh, uh, each animal has uh, each, we would say, species of animal. He doesn't think quite in the same term of species, but that'll do. Um, Each species of animal has um, certain capacities that are distinctive to itself as a species, as a kind of being, um, and constitute the individuals of that species as what they are. Um, uh, so if you think about a cat, um, now a cat has lots of capacities. It can eat and it can reproduce. It can do all things that all kinds of animals can do, but it has some distinctive things. So, for example, a cat pounces on stuff. Um, I have a cat. I tend to think of this as my... It's a characteristic. It on, yeah. <laughs> watch it pounce on things. The thought is, is that the exercise and the free exercise of those capacities are good for that kind of being, right? So the basic idea is imagine that you have a cat um, uh, and you treat it well in every way. Um, You give it food and you give it affection and keep it warm and so on, but you keep it in a small cage um, for its entire life. Anybody who has a cat, you know, if I do this in a public lecture, people go, "Uh," you know, and they, you know, because it's horrible. You don't do that to a cat. Um, now there are animals you can keep in a smallish cage, and they're they're, they're fine with it because they live in burrows or whatever. Sure. And they don't so you're
1: eliminating it. Your, or you're reducing it its fundamental
0: capacity. That's right. You're you're, capacity. you're 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 you you basically not allowing it any free exercise of that pouncing capacity that is constitutive of the kind of being it is. Uh, to, it, and al- allowing it to flourish. That's, that's right. It's fa- it fails to flourish, even though it could live a long life. Um, uh, It would be, you know, well-fed, it would be plump, it would, you know, it would show other sort of physical manifestations of doing all right, but no one who knows anything about a cat would say that was a flourishing cat that flourished through the Course of its life.
1: Hmm. Um, so the I was paying it, very strict attention to you, by the way. The reason I didn't gasp is not because I'm anti cat. I'm focusing everywhere. Don't, don't, don't take
0: me as an anti cat. No, no. Like. Uh, uh, I, I, I do it more dramatically, you know. It's <laughs> pretty it dramatic. But audience, did, so. but I, I knew you so, were proving a philosophical point. So it's a, so at any rate, um, so the thought is that, you know, each, each, each species is, is, is like this, it has certain capacities. So what are the human capacities? And Aristotle's very clear about this. Um, uh, uh, we have a kind of a hyper-social um, uh, capacity, therefore we can make these um, uh, uh, superior um, uh, public goods. Uh, we have reasoning capacity, that's how we make it. We have the capacity to, to, to Reason abstractly, both towards ends, we would say, for advantage and disadvantage, um, and uh, uh, re- we can reason about about um, uh, moral things, about about good and evil. And it says that other animals don't have this. He's not making a he is making a value judgment, but he's not saying that other animals live bad lives for them. He's just right. saying that these are our capacities. And we live good lives for ourselves, and he thinks these are higher. Higher, I mean, does does have a sort of a hierarchy? Um, uh, uh, so we've got uh, hypersociability, um, we've got uh, uh, reasoning capacity, rationality, um, and we have communicative ability. Um, uh, we have the ability to to use speech um, or writing or you know sophisticated forms um, of uh, a communication. Is just other animals don't have this. These are these are what constitutes us as human. Um, uh, and that any, if you take the analogy forward, any society um, or any community that then doesn't give you, as an individual human being, a chance to exercise your hypersociability, your reasoning ability, and your communicative ability. Um, you're going to be a cat in a box. You're going to be a cat in a box. And if you put hypersociability and reasoning and communication together, it means you use your mind and communicate with other of your fellows towards common ends, towards things that will make it better for us as a society, let's say security or welfare or whatever. Hence you're a political animal. Perhaps you're a political animal and, and you're also a democratic animal because each of us has this capacity. I mean, Aristotle very clear about this. This isn't sort of limited to um, uh, a few really smart guys and all the rest of us should just sit, you know, quietly and, you know, take out our tongues. Um, we each have this uh, Now, he makes all of these useless arguments about how women are limited in it and natural slaves and so on. We're using the inspired by Aristotle. That's right. Um, uh, So what uh, what I would suggest is if we get rid of those bad arguments and just take the inspired by, um, he's right. Uh, uh, Unless you think, well, no, humans aren't especially sociable which seems like an odd sort of thing to say. Um, uh, We are, and we're sociable in ways that other primates aren't. Um, uh, We're sociable in ways that don't require um, hierarchy all the way down. Um, So if you look at a troop of chimps or gorillas, for example, um, they require a very strict hierarchy. They can't exist without it, um, or they can't exist in a flourishing condition without it. That's just what they are. We can. Um, Now, obviously, some societies are very hierarchical. All societies have some forms of hierarchy, um, uh, but when we met, um, we didn't have to do, uh, for example, the kind of weird something. things that chimps <laughs> have to do. Um, uh, thank God, you wouldn't want that. That's right. We yeah, don't <laughs> have to go there either. But to determine which was us was the alpha, right. so we just sort of thought, well, yes, we, you know, we can we can just be, and, you know, others in the room as well. So it's a. Uh, uh, and that's, that's distinctive. So I think to say that humans aren't like that, aren't sort of hyper-sociable in a way that's really is, would be to make a mistake, um, uh, and to say that humans don't have a reasoning capacity that is different from, or at least different at some level than other animals, would be uh, to make a mistake. Clearly, other animals can reason to some extent from um, uh, means to ends, but uh, humans obviously have a, have, a, have a reasoning capacity that's different. And once again, communication. I mean, other species do communicate one way or another, but um, uh, no other species communicates with the kind of um, uh, uh, level of complexity that, that, that we do. Um, so if you buy the basic argument, and this is what people might not buy, um, that exercise of constitutive capacities, um, free exercise, is good for a being, um, then um, you backed yourself into the democratic corner. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and I find that to be a pretty hard argument to think myself out of without saying that humans are just completely different from all other kinds of animals in which, well, for other animals the exercise of their constitutive capacities like the cat in the cage example um, is good for them, but for us it's not good for us for some peculiar reason. I just don't understand why we wouldn't be like animals in that way, that free exercise of our constitutive capacities is good for us. So therefore... Um, it seems
1: tautological. Uh, I mean, it, once you say constitutive capacities, it seems like you're implying something fundamental that needs to be fulfilled in order to flourish. I yeah. mean, I mean it, it, it seems like it, it's, it's a... It would be paradoxical to say that denying a, a yeah. constitutive capacity is yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, so you can, you can come up with other ones that you say are in fact, well, fine, we've got those, but really what constitutes us as human is um, our capacity to be obedient to you know, another human. And so you could, you know, somebody can come up with another, use this kind of argument and say, no, actually, you've got the, you've got the capacities wrong. I'm just following along Aristotle and saying, I think he had them right. Um, and he didn't have them right because he was trying from the get-go to make a good argument about democracy. He's one of the critics of democracy. although. There's it's a logical consequence of his It's a logical consequence, and I think that's why, in some ways, the uh, ideal state that he develops has these strangely, as people have often pointed out, democratic features. He tries to, in some ways, do an end run around it by saying, well, we can bracket these democratic features in various ways in his ideal state, but ultimately, I think, um, he has bought himself into um, a world in which um, the best possible form of public order has features of democracy. That is, each of us gets to communicate and reason to um, create uh, together um, in creating uh, higher forms of public goods. So, so, let me be devil's
1: advocate again because I like being devil's advocate. Let me let me let me try let me try to respond to this and say if I look around. California today, which is where we happen to be mm-hmm. I see there are lots of people who are very social. Mm-hmm. I see there are some people who are rational let's say lots of people let's let me be generous mm-hmm. who are who are rational they're engaging in all sorts of social activity, social uh, organization. they go to their uh, PTA meetings so they they'll, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll look at their what their neighborhood community center happens to have and so forth and so on, and they're communicating a lot. Mm -hmm. So I see this, and in that sense, they are certainly social animals Mm -hmm. and they seem to be flourishing, relatively speaking. Um, But at the same time, all these people are doing this, but they're not voting. Mm -hmm. They're voting less, maybe, than they used to vote 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So their constitutive capacities are um, are being met to the extent that they are not our cat in the box, they seem to be, from the outside observer, living happy lives, but this mm. doesn't necessarily transcend itself into a, into a democratic tendency. Mm. How would you respond to that?
0: Right, so I think that the, you know, the move that you suggested is that um, we should think about being a democratic citizen as being a voter. And that, of course, would be very strange from the point of view of any Athenian or other Greek city that was democratic, or Aristotle for that matter. They don't suppose that voting on an occasional basis for um, uh, uh, a party's candidate um, uh, would be rightly understood um, as exercising political capacities. Okay, fair enough. So let me rephrase my question.
1: So, uh, same people, same state, um, same activities. Uh, This gets back to what I said earlier. By and large, Thomas Piketty's bestseller, Notwithstanding, Mm -hmm. they don't seem to be terribly oriented or preoccupied or frustrated by the fact that they are left out of the governing process. Mm -hmm. So, within the um within the framework of of being the proverbial cat which is now becoming it's going to be a proverb soon, the proverbial cat in a box yeah. um, it, it is not as if their their constitutive capacities seem to be from the outside terribly uh restrained they seem to be flourishing in all sorts of different mm-hmm. ways, independent of any political manifestation mm-hmm. do you see do you see where'm where I'm, where mm-hmm. I'm going mm-hmm. so that seems to be, if that's true, and maybe it's not true because maybe they are constrained, and, you know, there are all sorts of different things, but if that's true, then it seems you have a counterexample to this idea of democratic engagement being a natural consequence of mm-hmm. these, three, mm-hmm. uh, these three principles.
0: Yeah, so now we get into a question of uh, what is the nature of the community we're talking about? Right? So Aristotle had a very clear argument about this. He thought that the city-state was the proper size, sort of final, um, uh, highest uh, form of social organization for humans. He, thought, he really thought that that's that's the way that, that humans are political. In that they are well designed to live in a polis, in a in a, in a, in a city-state, and that's because he thought that. If you get bigger than a polis, an or ordinary-sized Greek city-state, you're going to have a difficult time really engaging in politics at the right level. That was the level of um, uh, ruling, taking your part in governing the community, um, and then being ruled over in your turn. So. Aristotle didn't think everybody should be doing politics all the time, um, but he thought that at some point in your life, you should actively engage in some kind of a a public, um, what do you call it, rulership, but um, engagement in, we would say, something like governance. So we can't say that with Aristotle, right? I mean, we can't say that, well, the problem is is that people don't live in city-states anymore um, and that we ought to because then we could be the the perfect political animal. That would be a pretty funny kind of argument to be making. Um, uh, So the question is then, um, uh, if we want to use this Aristotelian frame in some way that is, is effective, do we say that what we need to do is think about how to take the, at the moment anyway, uh, kind of the highest form of self-governing community, that is the nation state, right, Um, and think about ways in which citizens can engage in something that is more than just voting occasionally, be involved in governing, that is um, uh, use their reasoning capacity um, and their community of capacity to um, uh, govern together with others? Um, uh, Or do we say that um, uh, the nation state is only one instantiation um, of the various communities that humans form, in which engaging in collective self-governance Uh, might be possible and desirable for them. Um, And so, you know, this, you pay your money and you take your choice, Uh, and maybe it's both. Uh, So maybe, uh, as we were talking about earlier, there's ways to think about using technology, um, uh, using theories of networks and social media and so on beyond my capacity to really come up with actual... um, recommendations on this, but there's ways to think about how a national government could be more in the hands of its citizens. And so that um, when I send you know, a tweet to the White House, um, uh, that I feel I've actually engaged somehow in the kind of activity that that Athenian who was in his assembly, who's shouting with his other Fellow citizens, sit down, you idiot, and let somebody who knows how um, knows what You're to You're saying. You're at least having a little sh- a little shout. You're having a little shout. Do you? and so so maybe the, I, and I, I don't think it's ridiculous to sure. think that we could imagine um, sure. how to how to how to do that. In fact, in fact, here I mean, since I brought up California, of
1: course there is, um, or there 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 are various mechanisms, including referenda and propositions yeah, right. and so forth, which are. F- fairly
0: unique, I think. I'm not a student of this, but I mean... Uh, it exists in most of the American Western Western states, anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, this was uh, a pretty common um, uh, reform uh, uh, that really goes back to the late 19th, early 20th century, the, the progressive era. Really? Um, uh, and then that sort of sat... Um, fallow uh, for a long time uh, until uh, uh, especially California and, and, and now other other states as well began using it more, more regularly. Um, yeah, so there are ways in which citizens do make judgments together. They tend to do it very badly, you know? I mean, it's because we haven't really thought through how ought we collectively to um, engage in this kind of decision making. So I can, you know, it's sort of funny, I can go on the corridor and, um, uh, you know, what can claim to be one of the best political science departments in the world um, uh, before a California election and say, well, what should I think about Proposition 320? Um, And, uh, you know, my colleagues who are, really high-end political scientists will scratch their head and say, I haven't a clue. You know, I, I really haven't read it carefully enough. It's a pretty complex matter. And I think, wow, if that's true, you know, we're not doing it right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we haven't thought through how to um, uh, use referendum in ways that would allow citizens to actually make some kind of judgment that would be a rational judgment. Um, uh, and uh, But I think there are ways, once again, to think, to think that through. I mean, my colleague Jim Fishkin here has a, a system of um, bringing together groups of individuals in what he calls deliberative polls and f- giving them a couple of days to work together you know, as a group uh, on uh, pros and cons of various real-world um, uh, decisions that have to be made. Now, these aren't. You know these aren 't legis- don 't have legislative authority, but some of them have been um, uh, taken seriously by various governments in various parts of the world and The idea here is to be able to capitalize on
1: different potentially overlapping areas of knowledge from different people to be able to to harness this aristotelian group social behavior, as it were, combined right, with rationality and communication right for, and all these other things.
0: Right. For Fishkin's approach is is, uh, is is trying to get out true interests from um, uh, 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 mere preferences. So his, his idea is what would a cross-section of the relevant voting group, say the people of California or uh, whatever it may be, how would they choose? if they really had a chance to work through the issues and to hear experts on both sides of the issues, to talk with one another, to hear people who are actually affected by, um, and and then thought about how they would be affected. So if they really had a chance to basically deliberate, give reasons to one another, hear other people's reasons. Um, uh, So uh, uh, basically what he does on any given topic, um, that he's running one of these polls, uh, is to ask people to fill out a questionnaire before about their opinions on various things relevant to it, uh, to the, to the uh, decision that has to be made, and then go through this treatment, as it were, the treatment being listening to experts and talking with each other, listening to reasons, giving reasons, and then they um, at the end of the uh, treatment they fill out the same questionnaire and he measures the difference from the one to the other and the difference is often quite considerable across the whole group and he suggests that the second is the way the group would choose and if the group is representative of but would be truly representative of the larger group than how the whole group would choose if they had time to really think it all through. So that's, that's one part of it. The other way to think about bringing a group together um, and uh, making a judgment with a group um, uh, is what's sometimes called um, epistemic or knowledge-based um, uh, approaches to democracy uh, in which you assume that different people have different information, different forms of knowledge, different cognitive frameworks that they bring to bear on questions and that it's by aggregating these, once again, through sharing information, uh, tell me what you know that's relevant to the problem, I'll tell you what I know, um, tell me how you think about these kind of problems, oh, that's interesting, here's how I think about those sorts of problems, uh, that you might actually come up with a better solution. So. Um, uh, uh, so for Fishkin's approach is um, trying to give people you know, a yes-no choice and uh, uh, trying to get them to choose between yes and no on some issue in a way that more reflects their, their settled sense of their own interests and beliefs. Uh, the epistemic approach says that actually we might even ask a better question, or we might come up with a solution that wasn't even on, on the table in the mm-hmm. first place. If only we had the chance to share all of the things that we know individually in a kind of a in a, in a public matter. But these are but these are both part and parcel of a way of understanding being a democratic citizen that's really much more robust than um, right. just occasionally going into a voting booth and choosing a, choosing a representative.
1: And getting a sense of what is genuinely as best as one can determine in the best interests of the citizenry. I mean, this gets back to what you said before about people saying, trust me, I'm speaking for you, and other people saying they're speaking that's for right. you. You're, you're, you, you have a probe to be able to not maximally understand, but better understand what's actually in the interest of the people. Uh,
0: that's, are... that, that's right, and, and that, that any kind of epistemic approach, you know, knowledge-based approach to uh, democracy does make an assumption that there are actually some better and worse solutions to problems, so that therefore there are some things that genuinely are in the collective interest of uh, the community, uh, even though there may be some individuals in the community that say, you know, I still reject that. The idea is that there really are, objectively speaking, some things that are in the interest of the, of, of the community as a whole. That's controversial in and of itself. Um, some approaches to democracy says it's all about preference aggregation. Just take people as given, assume that people have you know, their own interests um, at heart, that they know them fairly clearly, um, uh, and just say the only way we can get going Um, or keep going as a society, is just decide where the majority of those preferences happens to lie right now, have the vote, and get on with it. Um, uh, But these other approaches, and certainly Aristotle and um, uh, almost anybody who, as I say, is sort of interested in these deliberative or or epistemic approaches to democracy, supposes that. Uh, no, we can probably do better than just aggregating preferences. Either we can refine our preferences and make them more like true interests, or we can um, come up with better solutions that actually are in the, collective, um, in, in the collective good.
1: But it seems from what you're saying that there is a preference between the two. So let me try to pin you down a little bit, which is to say, it seems as if, if one buys this inspired by Aristotle argument that these are constitutive... Elements of our character. Am I saying that right? Is that the, mm-hmm. um, namely the uh, our rationality, our sociability, and our communicative mm-hmm. skills. Mm-hmm. That if you and, and you add to that the idea that it's in the best interest of any being to be to be flourishing, which is to say, utilizing mm-hmm. and harnessing these constitutive capacities, mm-hmm. um, then the claim is that this leads not, to democracy. Uh, Mm -hmm. because, of course, if you're denying people the right to partake in this, you are denying them uh, use of these constitutive capacities. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that it would also indicate that a system which maximizes the use of that Mm -hmm. uh, through this deliberative process or through these other Mm -hmm. aggregating processes is superior to just checking out what people's preferences are because, uh, in the first instance, you're actually enabling them to use their communication and their rationality and their sociability and all that as a way of forming decisions.
0: Right. That's exactly right. Um, Right. So that's why the kind of Democrat I am, small d Democrat I am, uh, uh, is uh, of this sort of epistemic sort um, because, yes, I buy into this whole package of, uh, uh, roughly uh, speaking, Aristotelian understanding of um, uh, what is good for me and you and other humans uh, and what is good for a a collectivity. Um, uh, And yeah, so I think that A, will get to a better decision, we'll have better honey, as it were, if we were bees or, you know, uh, uh, and um, we'll have had a better time of it individually um, uh, as individuals. So it's both that you get a better outcome um, uh, and you have a better life. You have a a more flourishing life. Uh, And so the whole end of life for, you know, Aristotle was... Uh, what he called eudaimonia, sometimes called happiness or flourishing. It's not meaning happiness like feeling pleasure all the time. Uh, It means um, uh, having lived your life um, uh, as fully as possible um, in the kind of being in pursuing the kind of being that you are. the um, psychologist would call it self-actualization yeah, or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's, and it's not the kind of self-actualization that says, you know, I should just be number one. And, you know, it's there, there's, there's cheap ways to sort of do self-action. But this is simply to say, you know, what am I? Um, uh, I am a certain kind of animal. And how ought I to live my life so that I could be, you know, the best of that sort of being possible? Um, uh, and uh, if you have done that through the course of a life, Aristotle says, then you had a flourishing life. That's, that's, that's the most you can hope for. Um, and he thinks it's a very, it's a, that's, a, that's a lot. I mean, that's a huge, that's, that, that's, that's for him pretty much everything.
1: Tell me about the implications of this framework on on dignity. I know you've, you've mm-hmm. written a fair yeah. amount about that as well, um, because it's not just presumably about uh, your own, harmony and self-actualization and flourishing and whatever words we want to use, which are obviously very important. But it it also has repercussions on how you treat other people and how you interact with others.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we tend to think about the two big democratic values as being equality and freedom. And that's fine. And that's a great place to start as far as I'm concerned. If we're free and equal, we're doing pretty well, Um, at least politically free and politically um, uh, equal. Um, uh, uh, The uh, third value that I think tends to, in some ways, sort of get outsourced um, uh, uh, to uh, what is um, sometimes thought of as purely human rights language, and therefore not part of democracy, but properly part of uh, uh, something that would stand above democracy as a kind of a law for everyone, um, uh, that ought to be basic human rights uh, is this is this idea of dignity. Um, so I'm I'm all for human rights, um, uh, and I think that uh, uh, it is true that a, that a that a human life does not go as well as it ought um, uh, uh, in, in the absence of dignity. Um, uh, but I think it's also part of a democratic community because dignity that is only a human right, that is outside of um, uh, a civic community that is sustaining it by its by the a- chosen actions of individuals, um, uh, is not likely to actually protect dignity. Mm-hmm. So what is dignity? I mean, there's lots of ways to think about it. The way I think about it um, uh, is, is pretty simplistic, really, um, uh, uh, to be dignified. Um, means to be a sharer in equal high standing in your community. So you should have a standing that is in some ways equal. Your, your standing as a citizen, as, a, as an individual, is, is, is equal to that of others. And it's, and it's high, it's not equally miserable. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's equally sort of elevated. Uh, and it means, practically speaking, that you live without fear or without the experience of humiliation um, and without fear or experience of infantilization. So it means that the other people in your community do not seek to subject you to humiliation um, uh, uh, and they don't treat you as less an adult than you are. It's fine to treat an infant as in in an infantilizing way, but not good to treat an adult in an infantilizing way. Um, and so these aren 't meant to be terribly technical um, uh, and everyone can pull out of their own experience what they think it is to be to be humiliated or to be um, uh, infantilized but it's not meant to be it 's not meant to be sort of cheapened down to i oughtn 't ever to be affronted or i ought 't ever to be you know made to feel uncomfortable or something like this. The test of humiliation has to be stronger than that has to be um, uh, 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 being In some ways, treated in a way that you are not a a a possessor of of equal high standing with with others in your community. Um, uh, So the the basic thought is that if you are free and equal, and you get to live a dignified life, then you have the basic frame that you need to be a a democratic citizen. But I also think these are just basic goods um, that we uh, have reasons to want to be free that sort of stand outside of this whole democratic story and equal that stands outside of it and also to be to live without humiliation and infatalization. And I don't, you know, I, I basically in my work on this, I say, and if you don't sort of grasp that, then I don't, I mean, if you think, oh, no, it's just fine to to treat people, you know, humiliate them and fatalize them, I do it all the time, and I love and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, or if you say, no, actually, I like being humiliated, and, uh, you know, I like being treated, then I just don't, I, I, Sorry, I, I don't right? have any response to, to no, that. No, but nor no, should you? I'm going to ask a different question. Uh, you'll be relieved to know.
1: Um, I, I see how uh, Ensuring this, this high level of uh, of dignity certainly enables and facilitates this democratization process. Mm-hmm. Does it work the other way? To the extent that um, that 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 the uh, existence of, of a high universal level of, of dignity is a natural consequence
0: of a of a real democracy. I think I think it's, I think it is insofar as I think you can't have a democracy without this right so if you if you you imagine that um, you're perfectly free to come to the assembly no one's gonna there's no bullies who are gonna say you know not you Um, uh, and uh, you know okay you have an equal right to speak in the assembly and but you know that the people who are the important people in the society are going to you know, laugh and sneer um, and get all of their friends and laugh and sneer and th- basically do their best to humiliate you in every possible way that they can. Um, uh, when you do that, are you going to come to the assembly? No, of course you're not going to. You don't want to suffer humiliation. So you get that sort of prior restraint um, uh, uh, so that the, it seems to be the dignity in some ways is what is what makes your freedom To participate in the equality that you have in participating, real. Um, uh, That what you say in public is is, is taken seriously to the extent to which it deserves to be taken seriously. Now, if I go into a meeting of mathematicians and say, Well, I am a free and equal person, and I'm also dignified, so I'd like to tell you guys a few things about my opinions on string theory, and they say, Sit down, silly man. They were not. They, 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 are they not might say that it. to strength theorists as well, by the way. <laughs> might. <laughs> <laughs> they might say that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but it's a so you know it's not just that you know I have the right to you know, sure. feel fine about myself no matter what sort of silly thing I do. Um, but once again, if I'm in a political forum in which I have something to say, there's some reason to think I have something to contribute. Um, uh, I ought to be attended to. With that sort of seriousness, and not because, well, you know, you're from the wrong part of the country, or you have a funny accent, or you're the wrong color, or all the ra- various reasons that people might have to think that um, it would be a good idea for you to be humiliated instead of right. taken seriously. So, so
1: a proper democratic structure necessarily entails uh, uh, a, a minimal, maybe even robust level of dignity at, a, at some universal level. At some yeah, I think, I think so.
0: And it basically means we have, to do, we have to be willing to act in defense of one another's dignity because there are in every society people who like humiliating people. And that's what the Greeks certainly realized this. They had a whole vocabulary for it. Um, uh, and we've probably each met them. Um, uh, that, uh, that part of their pleasure in life is lowering other other people one way and another and making them feel bad or treating them in sort of an infantile way. Um, So those people need to be resisted. Uh, And uh, uh, if we don't collectively resist them, if we don't act in defense of the dignity of each and every one of us, uh, then you're going to get a cascade um, of uh, 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 indignity um, that will ultimately, I think, uh, uh, tear down the structure of, uh, of, of democracy or just leave a shell. Um, uh, so. Uh, it really is a kind of a problem of collective action um, uh, because often standing up against bullies, especially when they 're bullying somebody else, um, uh, uh, takes a certain kind of courage, uh, uh, but uh, it doesn 't take superhuman courage if you believe that other people are going to stand with you right. against that bully. if i say so that 's wrong don't don 't speak to her like that and if my fellow citizens will say, he's right, that's wrong, then I don't have to be very, I mean, maybe to be the first one who says it, takes some level of courage. Aristotle has a whole theory of the virtues, and courage is one of them. Um, uh, But it doesn't take any special kind of uh, uh, courage if I don't think that I'm just making myself vulnerable to the bully because everybody else is going to go running away. Uh, So it requires a both a uh, sort of a a mechanism that we can collectively act together against these kinds of uh, uh, actions. And this is one way to think about what hate speech laws do, for example. So, you know, that's just one example. And people like hate speech laws or don't like them. But it's an example of... Um, a kind of bright line. Uh, The law serves as a bright line. And when somebody uses something that is recognized as hate speech, I can say, ah, they have crossed the line. The line is in this sense, I think, arguably meant to avoid humiliation of people. And therefore, I ought to, as a law-abiding citizen, you know, say something about that. Say, don't do that. You know, stop. Um, I'll report you uh, one thing and another. Uh, So that there are various ways to imagine both formal rules, you know, like hate speech laws, but also social conventions. We don't do that around here. That's not the way we talk with each other, to each other around here. Um, uh, As kind of, you know, uh, uh, triggers um, uh, that uh, yield a response and then in a properly functioning society as I imagine it, um, uh, again, the assent of the community so, such that um, the bully is then dissuaded. Right.
1: So, th- there's, th- there's obviously a, a private sense of morality. We all like to believe that this is wrong and people should act in, sure. in a moral way. But there is this notion of proactively uh, following a certain course in order to ensure the proper governing policy structure of your society. There's a societal communal motivation which yeah. should be which should be part and parcel of, of any act.
0: That's right, and it's and it's not just altruistic, right? I mean, it's it's because if I say that this bully is you know bullying you, um, uh, I'm I'm going to be next, right. or maybe if I'm not next, I'll be. Th- third in line or something, but that I can perfectly well foresee a society in which if bullies get to do what they like and humiliate whoever they want, then eventually I'm going to be a victim of this. Uh, And so acting now... Proactively, I am actually acting in my own core interest, and I want to do it now um, before I'm I'm the victim. So yeah, so it's a way in which the sort of ethical impulse to do the right thing um, can also be related to. Um, a perfectly self interested impulse to not want to have my own life degraded, you know, not want to have my life go less well than it would, not have a less flourishing existence than um, I would otherwise have.
1: I, I want to, you've been very generous with your time, I just want to ask one or two more questions. Um, there's the question of, is the broader question for the guy on the street out there listening yeah. to this and saying, "Okay, this guy seems yeah. like a very smart guy. He's got right. a lot of things figured out. He's a serious scholar. He he's been able to make really fundamental and insightful connections to map onto um, uh, democracy and in, and in, in, uh, in ancient Athens and and look at some uh, look at the implications of that for for my life. Um, how?" how are his thoughts going to have impact? Uh, he's in a political science department at Stanford, that's all very nice, these guys hold conferences, they go, they have tea, they, they will discuss uh, the, uh, perhaps at some point various proposition in California and recognize that they they don't have any more uh, a deeper insight than maybe the guy down the street. Um, scholarship is all great, but if what you're saying is true, uh, and, and, uh, and, and we'll have and, and the stakes are as high as we're talking about, mm-hmm. then that should somehow be able to be communicated into the body politic, and mm-hmm. it should, so- should somehow be able to affect society. Mm-hmm. So to the question, and it took me a while to get there, how do your thoughts and those of your colleagues map on to changing society? Mm-hmm. How would you respond?
0: Yeah, um, and I don't have a great answer to that um, because... I think that there really is a place in the society for public intellectuals who have, you know, a big public voice, who you know write regularly for major media, and who um, have hundreds of thousands of, you know, Twitter followers, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that there's a place in society for people who work out sort of the fundamental level of either values or um, uh, uh, science. Uh, And there are not very many people, I think, who do both of those things really well. Um, So uh, uh, I don't think I do the first thing particularly well. Fuck with you. Nope. Um, working, working, so working, working I for me. I mean. <laughs> uh, so no, I'm 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 happy to try to you know engage outside of you know the world of um, uh, my uh, you know fellow academics, um, but I think that it's a somewhat different skill than most academics have to be able to really reach out in a in a big way um, and to uh, put ideas into a kind of a sharp and, you know, accessible and powerful idiom um, that really can capture uh, a lot of attention. So uh, I think it is what universities are supposed to be for, um, is that they generate ideas, and they make the ideas accessible enough um, uh, so that those who do have the skills to create, you know, a big voice, a big following, um, uh, can, should they choose to, um, uh, embrace them, them, get access to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Picardy's a great example of this, Um, uh, and his thoughts have been amplified and, you know, sharpened and, you know put out there for a mass audience in all kinds of ways. As you say, lots and lots of people bought the book, probably not as many read it mm. page by page, but a lot of people would be able to give you the basic argument of the book sure. because of the ways in which it's been um, taken up uh, by the media. So I think it's you know it's basically the universities um, or other places where people do as it were, fundamental work um, uh, on values on science, need to be the kind of places that can connect to this. So if I just say, look, I live in an ivory tower. I have no interest in ever even knowing that these other people exist. Um, uh, I uh, uh, write for my, you know, Appears in, you know, uh, uh, a political science or, or, or classics, and those are the people I care about. And if I just say that, I think I've, I've, I haven't done what I should be doing. I should be trying to at least make what I do accessible. But I think the idea that sometimes we get that every academic... You know, doing basic research should also be a public intellectual that, you know, I should be out there pushing a Twitter account um, uh, uh, is, uh, I think, false. I think that it, it, it sort of it, it confuses um, uh, the idea that both of these are really valuable things to do. Um, uh, and everybody should do both. And that everybody should do both. Um, uh, uh, so that's the, kind of a blurry idea, but I think it's really at the point of how do you design a university? How do you, um, if I'm running this university, what kind of incentives do I give you know, my faculty um, or graduate students or um, other members of the university community to you know, communicate with others what they've got. So if I say, look, the the, the best thing you can possibly do, the higher you get in the ranks of the faculty, the less you'll have to teach those miserable undergraduates, you know, because what do they really know? Um, you'll only really have to teach graduates and really only the best of the graduates and maybe not even them. Um, then, you know, maybe the university hasn't been optimally designed because maybe people who are doing fundamental research really should be out there talking to, you know, um, first-year students and uh, uh, trying to communicate what they know and what they do research on to at least in that sense a, a broader audience. And I think you know, good universities do exactly that. Um, uh, and that you know, and have the faculty uh, be challenged themselves. That's right, exactly. Um, uh, so I think that it's it's the that there's a, that there's always tendencies in universities to. Um, Go in different directions in terms of what the incentives, what the rules are, and so on, such that um, uh, all of the incentives say uh, disappear into that you know highest ta- highest chamber of the ivory tower um, uh, and uh, uh, communicate only with your fellow um, you know residents of that highest chamber um, but I think that once again you know great universities um, push against that tendency and say. Uh, after all um, you know no matter how great a scholar you are part of what your job is is disseminating what you know at least to our students and maybe to our alumni and maybe to some extent to the um, wider world in one way and another. Great. Anything I missed? Anything you want to add? I think that has been a great conversation for me. Um, uh, I'm always really happy to talk about uh, Uh, you know, both uh, the world of the ancients, um, uh, which I'm happy to talk about it in terms of why it's just terrifically interesting just in and of itself, but especially, you know, if we can uh, relate it to things that um, I think that, you know, citizens in a modern society ought to be thinking about, and I think sometimes are thinking about, but maybe... um, aren't encouraged to think about it as deeply or carefully or passionately as you know, maybe they ought.
1: Well you've helped a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks Josh. very much. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Great. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Politics, along with separate discussions with Jacques Bertrand, Marc Bevere, John Dunn, and Michael Fraser. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.